Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it's so good for us to be uh, together this morning and to to sing of your love, uh, your unending love, your amazing love. Father, the love that you have shown us uh, preeminently in your Son. Father, we're so grateful that you uh, demonstrate your love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, uh, Jesus Christ uh, came for us. Father, we we bask in your love. Father, we're grateful for it. And I pray that you would just reveal uh, more and more of that to us. Father, we're reminded as we have sung of your love that there's nothing that can separate us from it. And as we uh, go through various trials, as we go through various uh, tribulations, Father, we are reminded that uh, nothing uh, can separate us from your love. Father, your love tells us that we are more than conquerors in these things because you have loved us. Paul says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You guys can be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And we have been in the book of Judges for uh, quite some time now, and I hope, I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, golly, we really have to take our offering, you know, like here. I'm just getting going, man. We are going to take our offering. Apparently, one week is not enough for me to remember the order of service, and so uh, our ushers are going to go ahead and do that. Uh, but it is a good time now. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. Book of Judges, chapter 20 is where we're going to be. Uh, prepare our offerings uh, to give freely of the Lord what he's given to us, and then we're going to jump into the text. Thank you, guys. All right, for real this time, we're going to get into the Bible. <laughs> turn with me to the book of Judges. Uh, we will be wrapping up our series in the book of Judges. Um, and so uh, our great book, The Downward Spiral, has come to the end of the spiral, the very uh, last story here in the book of Judges. And so if you have your text, uh, we're going to be mostly in Judges chapter Judges chapter 20. Again, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Uh, it's been a fascinating book, a lot of interesting stories, and uh, I think a lot of good lessons for us. Uh, just by way of preview as to where we hope to be, uh, Lord willing, in the future, uh, next Sunday we hope to start a series um, called The Art of Romance. And it is a book, um, it is a sermon on the book of Song of Solomon. And so if you've never read the Song of Solomon, get ready. It's going to be really good. It's about dating and attraction and romance and faithfulness. And everything that God uh, wants us to know, I think, about human love. And so it's going to be a great, great series. Really looking forward to that. After that, I hope to jump into the book of James uh, for the book of uh, the book of James for the summer. So that's where we're going to be. Um, so by way of introduction this morning, um, it was probably about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, um, that I, from what I understand, although I've only lived here for three years, we had a bit of an odd occurrence uh, for us who live in central Illinois, and that was an earthquake. Anybody remember how long ago that was? About two years ago, two and a half years ago? Okay, a little further than what I remember. Um, and, we had a, and that's pretty unusual, right? Okay, I thought so too. You know, I come from Texas, and uh, there are no earthquakes in Texas either. Um, and so um, how many of you actually had a chance? It was in the middle of the night, I think. How many of you actually had a chance to experience the earthquake? Okay, several of you. So you guys were woken up in the middle of the night, right, by this earthquake. Apparently, I had had, I don't know, some sleeping drugs or something because 
which is very unusual for me. I slept right through the thing. I mean, I remember, you know, talking to people the next day, and they're like, we had an earthquake. And I'm like, what are you smoking? You know, <laughs> there's no way. Um, and, and then I slightly just remember that faint hint of, oh, man, maybe I did wake up with something kind of shaking. And I just went right back to bed. So um, I, I'm somewhat disappointed that I missed my first earthquake experience. On the other hand, I'm pretty grateful that I haven't experienced an earthquake yet. How many of you who, you know, who I guess experienced that? That was your first, your first earth, earthquake. First earthquake. Okay, several of you guys. Um, again, I, I kind of missed it, but uh, help me out here. What, what words would you describe the experience of an earthquake. How would you describe it? What word comes to mind? Speak feedback here. Unexpected. Unexpected. Okay. Absolutely. What else? Confusing. Okay. What over here? Uncontrollable. Yeah. What else? Okay. <laughs> right. Just. <laughs> life is life is life is normal, huh? You know, I was thinking about it, and again, I don't speak from experience, but one of the words that came to my mind about this feeling of having the earth shake below you is, is the idea of instability. That's that's the word that I would use had I experienced it. And as I think about what it must be like, the idea of being unstable, of instability. Um, I can't imagine, because I've not experienced, having that which is underneath our feet and for an entire lifetime like, like myself, that is solid. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't move. It doesn't shake. It's dependable. But then when an earthquake happens, I just can't imagine what that's like to have that which is always dependable, always stable, become unstable to experience that kind of instability. Uh, by way of introduction to the last story, the, conti- the continuation of the last story in the book of Judges, um, we have uh, seen two stories here in the conclusion of the book of Judges. If you remember, chapters 17 and 18 constitutes one story, and then chapters uh, 19, 20, and 21 is one big story. And the book of Judges ends with these two complementary stories. And these two stories at the end of the book of the Judges are meant to be bookends. They are meant to show us that we are at the end of the downward spiral. They are meant to show us how far God's people have fallen. Chapters 17 and 18, the first story, showed us Israel's idolatry. It was about idolatry. Chapter 19, which we saw last week, a really tough chapter, highlighted Israel's immorality. So we have idolatry, immorality. And I would suggest to you that the concluding story, the continuation of of this second story in the book of Judges, chapters 20 and 21, shows us Israel's instability. We've seen idolatry, we've seen immorality, and finally what we see as a hallmark of the downward spiral of God's people is that there is instability, both political and social. There's political instability in the nation, and there's social instability in the nation. So let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, What I have here is is, is an outline. I want to take just a brief moment. At least I think I have an outline. Do I? 
There we go. Uh, just a quick outline. Uh, for those of you guys who are taking notes and you kind of want to know the direction of where we're heading, I would suggest that you jot down Roman numeral 1 and 2. In chapter 20, essentially what we see is the destruction of Benjamin. What we're going to see is the almost, the very close, annihilation of an entire tribe of Israel. We're going to see civil war. And so we will have the destruction of the tribe of Benjamin. And then what we're going to see by, by way of summary in chapters 21, chapter 21, is the, preser- the preservation of Benjamin. So they're almost extinct. And God's people say, uh-oh, there's a problem. One of the tribes is almost gone. We are going to try to preserve them. Uh, there are other bullets here. Uh, they will be on the top of the slides. And so as we read along in the text, you'll have those you know, A, B, C, and D there with you if you care to jot them down. So let's go ahead and dive into the text this morning. Uh, starting uh, in verse 1 of chapter 20, we see the destruction of the tribe of Benjamin. And in verses 1 through 7, we see uh, the story continued. If you recall from last week, um, there was a horrific event that occurred um, in a, Benjamin, a Benjamite city. Uh, a Levite and uh, had his concubine um, sexually abused and then murdered even though he pushed her out. And then the men of the city would not take responsibility for it. And so he goes home. And if you recall the gruesome act, he takes and divides her body into 12 parts and sends, sends them across, uh, across the land of Israel. And he says, look what has happened. See for yourselves, nation of Israel, what are you going to do? And so we pick up the story. The story continues in 1 through 7 as the nation inquires as to this, uh, this Levite's complaint. And what we see is the testimony... The testimony of this Levite, it's, it's honest, but it's incomplete. And I think you'll see what we, what we mean here in a second. And so let's go ahead and jump in to the inquiry and to the complaint of the Levite, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 20. Let's read this together. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of the people all of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, and so we have his testimony. I came, to Benjamin, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And so here we have the testimony of this Levite. And if you recall the story, what he says is accurate, but he fudges the truth just a bit. His testimony is not exactly whole. He says they came, they wanted to kill me, which is a reasonable you know, assumption. Um, and then they took advantage of my concubine and they killed her. But he just left out, yeah, you know, just a small detail, that he booted her out the door. You know, he just kind of leaves that aside. Um, and so he, we see the testimony. And Israel, uh, reasonably so, rightly so, is outraged that they, um, they're very mad. 
And so something that I want to point out here that I think is really interesting, when we look at this story, we have to compare it and contrast it to the, to the, to the first introduction of the story, to chapter 17 and 18. If you recall, there was idolatry in the land. Uh, there was a Levite who was committing idolatry and an entire tribe who was committing idolatry. And so at the very beginning, we see what strikes me is that all of the nation, did you catch that at the very beginning of the verses? All of the people of Israel come together because of this horrendous and outrageous event. They come together united in one man, 400,000 warriors accompany them. And there is great anger over the rape and the murder of this man's wife, this man's concubine. And rightly so. The, the people of God are coming together. But what strikes me, what should strike us, is that this, this event, this sin, they were up in arms for. But what we see is that in the event prior, when a Levite and an entire tribe was committing blatant, horrible idolatry? Where were God's people? What were they doing? Did they care? Do we see the kind of response then that we see now? And what we see is that no, we don't. And so, something to point out here, at the very beginning, God's people, although rightly outraged about this, they care about some sins, and they don't care as much about others. They're being selective and what enrages them. And so we see they inquire as to the complaint. We see the testimony. And in verses 8 through 11, we see the nation decide to engage the city of Gibeah in war. So let's read this together. Verses 8 through 11. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay, notice that word, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all of the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And so they hear the testimony. They say, this is outrageous. We are going to go up against this city, and we are going to administer justice. We are going to attack them because this was a horrendous thing. A couple things that I think stand out here, a couple things to point out. First of all, we have to ask the question as we read the narrative. Oftentimes, questions arise, and and the, the text itself doesn't exactly give us answers. We don't know. So a question that comes about is, they're coming up against this city, this city who not only um, had the, but the city who allowed it to happen. The city is intrinsically guilty here. And so they decide to come up against the city and to go to war against the city. And so the question we have to ask is, is it right? Are they doing the right thing here? You know, is this, is, is this what God would want? As we look throughout the scriptures, I would answer, I think so. I think they're doing what is right. I think they're seeking to administer justice in the land. Um, I invite you, as you go home, to take a look at Deuteronomy 13. In Deuteronomy 13, in particular, in verses 12 through 18, God gives his people um, some commandments about how to handle cities 
how to handle groups of people that are blatantly violating the covenant, that are blatantly violating God's desire for the nation. And in that little section, essentially what God says is if there are a city, a a group of worthless men, which is exactly the same term used here. He says if there's a city, a group of worthless men who commit idolatry and they encourage others to commit idolatry, what you need to do as a nation is you need to go up against the city and you need to destroy them. You need to go to war with them. And so I think, I think it's legitimate here. I think uh, God's people at this point are actually doing something right for a change. And they're saying justice has to happen. We're going to come up against this city and we're going to try to destroy them. I think, I think this is the right thing for them to do. The second thing I want to point out here is the, the great irony that we see here. There's great irony in this passage because finally what we see is that God's people are working together. If you remember throughout the book of, the, uh, of Judges at the very beginning, what were they supposed to do? What was their divine mission? They were to go into the land, they were to destroy the people of the land, take the people of the land. So that's what they were supposed to do, and they were supposed to work together to do that. Throughout the book of Judges, we see the tribes not doing that. They are not only going up against the enemy, but there's, there's disunity. They're acting as individuals as opposed to a nation. But finally, finally, they're acting as one. Notice the emphasis in verses 8 through 11. They acted as one man. And so ironically here... They have failed throughout the book to unite to fight the enemy. But now they are uniting to fight who? Themselves. <laughs> Doesn't shed a good light on God's people here. So we've seen an inquiry into the, uh, into the complaint. We've seen the decision to go up to war. And in verses 12 through 7, we have what I would call pre- a prelude to war. Um, it's about to happen, but what they do is they send the, the city of Israel, uh, excuse me, the nation of Israel sends people throughout the, the, uh, the, the tribe of Benjamin and they say, hey, you, you know, give up those evil guys. They've done wrong, give it up, and their request is not met with much enthusiasm. Uh, let's read together 12 through 17. 12 through 17. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out uh, of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all of these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Pretty good aim, eh? I don't think it's I don't think it's one of those you know, that's not what they're talking about here. <laughs> Although it'd be cool if it was. And it wraps up. And the men of Israel apart from Benjamin mustered four hundred thousand men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. And so we're seeing the sides divide. We see that the nation of Israel as a whole has many more men, many more warriors than the, the city of, of Gibeah and the tribe of Benjamin. And so they decide to go to war. They say, hey, Benjamin, give up the evildoers. Give it up. Give up the city of, uh, of the men who did this. And they say, no way. <laughs> We're not going to do that. They're our brothers. I don't care if they're rapists. I don't care if they're murderers. We're going to side with them. And so Israel says, so be it. 
we're going to war. And so then following in verses 18 through 28, we see what I would call Israel's initial defeats. This is a really kind of a sudden twist in the, in the story. What we see is we've just been given the battle numbers. Israel far outnumbers the, the city of Gibeah and the people of Benjamin. And so you anticipate that this would be not much of a battle. You anticipate that this would, it wouldn't last very long and that Israel would clean the clocks of their brothers. Well, it does happen, but not yet. Because God allows a couple defeats for the nation of Israel. And we see this in verses 18 through 28. So let's take a look at that and we'll make some observations on that. Verses 18 through 28. And it says, The people of Israel arose and went to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. That sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to anyone? At the very beginning of the, of the book, the people inquire of the Lord. Who shall go up first? And it's, been, and, it's, and it's Judah. And so here we have this happening again. Verse 19. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The war is started. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. And so the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out to Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. Two losses. And these were, these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? So what should we do, God? We've had two defeats. What's going on? What should we do? And the Lord said, Go up. For tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And so it's a kind of a twist in the story. We don't anticipate this happening. We see Israel, who had gone up to administer justice, rightly so, I believe, uh, to the city of Gibeah and the Benjamites. But they suffer two initial defeats. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a, a monkey wrench in the story. And we ask, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, what, what's going on here? And the text doesn't answer it for us. The text doesn't say exactly what happened. Uh, there are a couple ideas that I think both could be right. Uh, the most often, uh, often suggested idea is that Israel was presumptive, that they presumed, since they were following the law, that God would be with them and that God would give them victory. And they, uh, it would be a cakewalk, and they failed to humble themselves before the Lord. They failed to be dependent upon the, the Lord. They failed to truly grieve over the sin of their brothers over in Gibeah. I think that's very legitimate. I think another possibility is that God, seeing all things, knowing all things, seeing the future, that God knew how the story would end. 
I think both could be true. But I, th- I think that God knew how the story would end. That is, he saw into their hearts. He saw into their motives. He saw into the intent of what they intended to do as they went into battle. Because what we're going to see is that, in reality, Israel didn't just want justice. They wanted revenge. They wanted blood. And what we're going to see, and I don't want to ruin the, spoil the story, but what we're going to see is that they go in battle, once God gives them the victory, to administer justice on this city. The people of Israel go way too far. We're going to see that in a second. So let's get to this last section. A lengthy section, verses 29 through 49. It's a story of of the battle. It's the story of the battle in which Israel will win because God had promised it to them. Um, It's two stories. In Hebrew, especially in narrative and stories, this happens quite a bit. What you get is a summary, like a short account of what happened, and then you get a longer account of what happened with more details. And that's exactly what we're going to see. And so don't get confused as we read uh, these 20 verses if there's repetition and those kind of things. There's a short account and there's a longer account filling in the details. And what we're going to see is what I would call the near extinction of Benjamin. There will be one tribe of God's people who almost, who almost get wiped completely off the map. Let's read this together, verses 29 through 49. Here we go. So Israel sent men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people, uh, against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as the other times, they began to strike and to kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other, and the other to Gibeah. And in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said... They are routed before us, as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their places from Mareah Giba. And there came against Gibeah ten thousand chosen men out of all of Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed, here's the number, the people of Israel destroyed 2,500 uh, 2, and uh, an additional 100 men of Benjamin that day. And these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Okay, that's the, that's the short version. That's the capsule. Essentially what happens, they say, Let's set an ambush. We're going to flee. They're going to chase us. We have men in ambush. They're going to take the city. Basic military strategy, and it works. Here's the longer account. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all of the city with the edge of the sword. Now, the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up in the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. So they say, here's the sign. When you see the smoke, stop fleeing and go attack. Now, Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when... 
the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke. The Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out pursued them and trod them down uh, from Noah as far as the opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. Five thousand men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them, and two thousand men of them were struck down. So all who fell, kind of a summary statement, so all who fell that day of Benjamin were twenty-five thousand men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But six hundred men turned and fled towards the wilderness of the rock of Ramon, and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. So here's the basic gist of it, and then we're going to read verses, uh, verse 48, because it's, it's bad. Basically, there's a war. Benjamin is routed. They lose a ton of men, except for 600 people in battle. And so as we think um, justice has been administered, Israel has won the battle, if you will. And then it gets bad. Verse 48. And the men of Israel, that is the fighting men of Israel, turned back against the people of Benjamin, the people of Benjamin, and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they had found, and all, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. And so here's what we see. Here's what I think we see happening. There is a battle. It's right. Israel wins. They administer justice to the city of Gibeah, just as God told them to. But they didn't stop there. They, they had revenge, I believe, as in the intent of their heart. And what they did is they didn't just destroy the city of Gibeah like they should have. And they didn't just destroy as many men of the troops of Benjamin as I think was right. What they then decided to do, which I think is the fatal error, is they said, we're going to go to all the other towns in the, nation, in the state, if you will, in the region of Benjamin. Not just warriors, not just the city of Gibeah. We're going to go to all of the other cities in this tribe. And we're going to kill everyone. We're going to kill everyone. And we're going to burn it down. And that is what I believe is the issue here. They go too far. And so we have, I think, the near extinction of Benjamin. And what is ironic here is that has justice been served? Has justice been served for the Levite and uh, his, his dead concubine? Well, yes, justice has been served, but justice has more than been served. They do more than what justice required. Instead of just destroying Gibeah, they destroy all of the cities. And so, is there justice? Yes. But in seeking justice, they do more in justice. And so the story of chapter 20 ends. 21 continues on the story. But what I want to do now is kind of pause. Let's take a little breather, if you will. It's a long text. It's a long story. 
And I want to make a couple application points for us. We've seen this story. So what in the world does it mean for us? What principles can we glean? First principle, there are two that I have in mind. And the first principle is that of inconsistency. That of inconsistency. And what I mean by that is that very clearly when we look at these two stories, the story of the Levite and idolatry and the story of of murder and of sexual abuse, one gets God's people's attention. And it's horrendous. And the other, idolatry, does not get God's people's attention at all. They care more about the latter than they do the former. And it's inconsistent. And what we see here, I think, is, can be very true of God's people today. We are inconsistent about that which enrages us. We are inconsistent about what sin really gets us going. So, I, I kind of see it as, as a pet sin. So, I use the word pet peeve. Everyone knows what a pet peeve is, right? A pet peeve is something that kind of gets us going. You know, it's something that really makes us mad. And it's something kind of typically obscure and minute. You know, it's something that we choose, and it's kind of weird, to get mad at that. You know what I mean? And, and here I think God's people, and this can happen to God's people on this side of the cross as well, is that we have pet sins. And what I mean by that is we choose the things that make us angry and the sin that we hate, rightly so, but then we ignore and we don't care as much about other things. And so by way of pet peeves, I want to, I guess, be a little bit vulnerable and let you know what some of mine are. And then I might ask you, so be thinking about it, if you're willing to share any of your pet peeves, if it won't get you in trouble <laughs> in church. But, but for me, I was kind of thinking this week, what are the things that really get me going that are somewhat obscure? Um, one of my pet peeves is when any sort of technology doesn't work. And so if my laptop doesn't work, I want to kick it. <laughs> and if my TV isn't working like it should or my DVD isn't, isn't working, I want to throw it away. Any kind of technology that is supposed to make life easier and it makes life harder in that moment, that's a pet peeve of mine. I get pretty irritable about that. Um, I guess another one, as I was, a couple really, as I was thinking about it, has to do with driving. Um, blinkers. When people don't use their blinkers... I get so unreasonably crazy mad. <laughs> and it's not even it's so wrong. I admit it. I'm so selfish. But when I'm sitting at a stoplight and there's a car coming and I'm not sure exactly what they're doing because they're not using their blinker and they make a turn right where I'm coming, in that moment in my sin, I'm like, you cost me 10 seconds of my life. <laughs> you know, It's so unreasonable, but it's a pet peeve when people don't use their blinkers. Another one. And so the moral of the story is if you see me on the road, use your blinker. <laughs> uh, another one has to do with driving is when I'm uh, you know, driving on the highway. I, I tend to think that I'm a pretty courteous driver. I mean, there are times I, I'm probably not the best. But I think generally speaking, I'm pretty courteous. And so uh, what I do, I think I grew up doing this. My dad taught me to do it. If you're driving and you're going slow or maybe the speed limit and everyone else is speeding, what's the right thing for you to do? People are piled up behind you. I try to get over you know what I mean. You try to get over, try to let them pass you, especially if it's a, a one or two lane road. And so I do that. I, I say, okay, you're going to speed, fine. I'll get over. You know, I'll kind of move over. I'll let you pass me, that kind of thing. Um, this happened while we were in Hawaii. Uh, we were on a, a 30 mile road that the speed limit never got more than 30 miles per hour. And so you can imagine it's slow and windy and curvy and cars get stacked up pretty good if you're, you know, a tourist like me. And so on the island, the natives... Let's just say they didn't like 
tourists, making them go slow. And you could tell immediately who was a tourist and who was a native, because the native was going like 45, and the tourist was going like 25, you know, and they're right on your tail. And so I try my best to, to get over whenever I can. Pet peeve of mine, when you pass me, and I'm being gracious, and in Texas, and I don't know how it is in Illinois, but in Texas, at least down south where I grew up, the common courtesy is to give a little wave. You, you know what I'm talking about? Shake your head if you know what I'm talking about. You pass somebody, thank you. Thank you for being gracious. You know, does that happen here or am I just weird? Do people do that here? Oh. Okay, well, here's the deal. Maybe I need to let go of my pet peeve. Then. But for me, you just give a little wave. Hey, thanks for being generous. Thanks for letting me. In Hawaii, I can count on my hands the number of times that, that that happened. And I can count on maybe another hand how many times I got something else. <laughs> but that's a pet peeve of mine. You guys have any pet peeves you're willing to share about? Pet peeves? Pet peeves? It's okay if you don't. Just thought I'd let, keep it, liven it up here a little bit. It's okay. Those are my pet peeves. We all know what a pet peeve is. It's something that makes us mad. It really shouldn't. Bringing it home here. We all have pet sins, things that, as a church and as an individual, that make us mad, rightly so. But in doing so, we kind of pass over other things. And so, as a church, uh, as a church culture, I think this could look like a lot of different things. But uh, just by way of example, as a church, this could look like uh, maybe maybe limiting a, a person who's been divorced, um, wrongly so, limiting their service within the body in an unbiblical manner, but allowing a person who is a known gossip throughout all the town to continue to teach Sunday school. That's what it looks like. We are inconsistent in what we do that. Uh, another way that, that looks like is when we confront someone, uh, let's say they're addicted to porn or they're caught in, 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 in adultery, we confront them as we rightly should but we would never do that to a person who struggles with gluttony. We'd never do that, would we? I don't think we would. I don't know of a church that would. This looks like things like when we, when we champion certain causes that are good and right, that we should as a church. Say abortion. It's good. It should enrage us. It's wrong. We should champion it. It's absolutely right for us as a church and as a wider church culture in the United States to champion and to rally around this sin. But what we don't do what we forget about is we overlook other things, things that may contribute to that. Things like hunger, things like poverty, things like inequality, things like justice. And we don't care about that. All we champion is abortion. Should we champion abortion? Absolutely. In the, in the sense that it's wrong, of course. Um, this is what it looks like. We have pet sins in the church. Not only in the church, but you and I as individuals... We have pet sins of our own, things that we really get mad about, things that we care about, things that are wrong and get our fire going, but we so easily are inconsistent in that. And so I want to ask you personally, what are some of your pet sins? They should be. They're good. They should make you mad. They should enrage you. And then contrary, what are some of the things that you're just okay with? You know what I mean? We're just okay with it. We're just okay with it. Maybe it's uh, when you look upon someone and you think, they are lazy. They're so lazy. They, they don't work hard. They don't even want to get a job. They're lazy. Uh, they're not a good, they're not diligent. And we can get really mad at that. But at the same time, we are completely blind to the pride in our own heart. We're completely blind to the fact that we think that everything we have 
has come from our hard work. And yeah, it certainly has come from hard work, but it's come from God's grace. And he's given it to us, and he's been gracious to us, and we are completely blind to the pride in our own heart. This happens when our wife criticizes us, and we think it's unjust, and we get so angry about that when our wife or our spouse treats us wrongly, but we don't care about the fact that we Uh, don't take responsibility like we should. We don't care about the fact that we don't take initiative like we should in the the relationship. And we have our pet sins. And typically pet sins are other people's pet sins. We we don't like it when other people do it, but we, it's okay when we do. When we do. Um, You know, by by way of example, um, we can look at a family, we can look at a parent and say, they're so uninvolved they're so uninvolved in their kids' lives. They never go to their games. They never pick them up. You know, they're never there. We just don't see the activity. And we can think, man, what a, what a crummy parent. What a crummy parent. They're, they're, they're lazy and unloving and uninvolved. But when we look at our life, what we see is that our kids dictate our lives. And that they dictate our priorities. And our kids are running our life and setting the priority instead of us as parents and the church doing that. We're so easily inconsistent just like God's people of old. Second, second um, shorter application here is the idea of disunity, the, the idea of infighting amongst God's people. Um, every time I talk about this, someone asks me, is there a fight going on? Is someone mad at someone? You know, no. <laughs> so I'll just dispel that right now. It's fine. I think this is, a, I think this is pretty good. I think as, as a church, we're pretty healthy about this. But the text merits it, and I think if we don't, if we're not proactive about talking about unity and disfighting, well then it's gonna it's gonna sneak up on us. So just a few a few things here. The principle that we see from the from the text is that when God's people are fighting amongst themselves, they're not doing the mission of God. You see that they were fighting amongst themselves, rightly so to some degree, but they were caught up, and they, the, the irony is they're fighting themselves when they should be fighting the, the enemy. That's what God told them to do: fight the enemy, take the land. And throughout the book of Judges, they fight amongst themselves, and they don't take the land. And so the principle that we see here is that when we, as God's people, um, both old and new, when we fight, when it's internal focus, we lose mission. We lose mission. And so just a couple ways that this could look like uh, in our church and in other churches. Uh, We really need to be on guard. We need to be on guard. We need to be careful not to care more about the color of the carpet than our community. We need to care more about our community than the color of the carpet. We need to care more about the landscape, the spiritual landscape of our community and our families and the people that God's bringing into our lives than we do about the landscape of the church. We need, to, we, need to be on, we need to be on guard. We need to care more. We need to care more about providing good ministry to our children and to our youth than we do about an occasional time when they run around the church and make noise more than they should. Yeah, we should care about that. But let's not get so caught up on that than providing a wonderful, excellent, good children's and youth program. Because that's the mission. <laughs> that's the mission that God has given us. So we're going to wrap up here. We're going to wrap up here. Verse chapter 21, we see the preservation of Benjamin. In chapter 20, what we've seen is the destruction of Benjamin. Benjamin is, is teetering on the verge of extinction. Uh, chapter 21, we're not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it here. But what we see is that chapter 21, God's people say, Dope! We almost killed off a whole tribe. What are we going to do about it? And they come up with 
some harebrained, idiotic, brilliantly stupid plan to try to make it right, and the spiral goes downward. What we see as the story continues is that in chapter 21, God's people get buyer's remorse. You know what buyer's remorse is, right? Anyone ever had buyer's remorse before? Be honest. Okay, I think most of us at some point in time have had buyer's remorse. The idea of buyer's remorse is that we buy something and we take it home and we're like, why did I spend that, you know? Do I really need this? That's buyer's remorse. You, re- you regret what you did. Um, what, what Israel has here is like murder. Uh, you know, they have murder uh, remorse. Like, oh, man, we shouldn't have done that. Go figure. Uh, and so, you know, buyer's remorse. Um, the, the, the first guitar that I bought, I spent a lot of money on it, and I brought it home, and I'm like, Dink, dink, dink. You know, I couldn't play. I'm like, oh, buyer's remorse. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Uh, the moment we pulled our, our, our white car off the lot, there was a little, a little bit in my gut that was like, oh, man, that car just appreciated 25%. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Oh, buyer's remorse. Uh, the other day, um, not to pick on my wife, but I think, I think you struggle a little bit more with, with, with this than I do. You know, you buy something, you're like, oh, should I, should I have got that? Should I spend it? You know, and I have spenders, I have, I have savers remorse. I'm like, oh, I should have bought that. <laughs> Why did I not get that sale? You know, we're completely the opposite in that regard. And my wife struggles with that a little bit more than we do, but I guess we balance out. But long story short, they have, they have some remorse here. And they say, they say, there's 600 men of Benjamin. So how are we going to repopulate Benjamin? What are we going to do? They have 600 men, and we've killed all the women and children in Benjamin. They're all dead. What are we going to do? And so they're like, well, here a, couple, a couple issues. One issue was, stupidly, I think, before the war began, they said, let's make a vow. We're never going to give any of our daughters in marriage to those silly, stupid Benjamites. That's a vow that they made. Uh, lo and behold, it bites them in the rear end. They, they can't give their own kids. They can't give their own. And so you can't do that. And then there's an additional issue, but it actually solves the problem. They also gave a vow, and their vow was, anyone in Israel who doesn't show up to fight, we're going to go kill them. Okay. (laughs) They just really, you know, this is not good. And so so they say, okay, well, who didn't show up? And they, you know, they draw sticks or whatever. And there was one city by the name of Jabesh Gilead, I believe, that didn't show up for the battle. And so they're like, ding, we've got the problem solved. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to we're going to go against this city of Jabesh Gilead and we're going to go through with our vow. And so they go against this Israelite city and they kill everyone except for 400 virgins. So they're kind of selective on their vow. You know, it, it makes it work. They kill everyone. Oh, they kill everyone except for these 400 virgins. And they're like, here, Benjamites, let's make peace. Let's get lovey-dovey. Here's some wives for you, right? Brilliantly stupid. So, but it's not, it's not over. There's still 200 men of Benjamin who don't have wives. So like, uh, what are we going to do? Ding! Another brilliant idea, right? They're like, well, they had to be good lawyers and politicians because good lawyers and politicians like loopholes, right? They, they find the loopholes. And so they find a loophole and they're like, well, the vow was that we can't give our children away, but we didn't say that they can't be taken from. They find this loophole. And so then they, they get their heads together, and apparently they don't involve this city, uh, this Benjamite silly, uh, city. Uh, I believe it's uh, Shiloh, the city of Shiloh. And they're like, okay, this is what we're going to do. 
you 200 men of Benjamin, there's this festival, and it's coming up. And during this festival, the women get out and they sing a dance. They sing and they dance and they have a good time, and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're unsuspecting. And obviously, the people, the men of Shiloh were not involved in this little plan, right? <laughs> and so they, they say, when the women come out to dance, just go take them. Just go take them. Kidnap them. That's what they're doing. They're kidnapping 200 people of their own people, Israelites. And they're like, just go take them. And then when their dads say, hey, what happened to my daughter? It was, you know, kidnapped here. They say, well, we had to get around the vow. Remember you said you wouldn't give your daughters, but you didn't say that they couldn't be taken. Gotcha. And that is how they provide wives for 600 men. And the complete irony of it is, what, what initiated all of this bloodshed and injustice? It was a rape. It was a sexual abuse of the woman's concubine. She was taken by force in a physical way. But what does it lead to? Israel takes 600 women, not in a sexual way, but they, they rape these women in the sense that they take them forcefully away from their families. Oh. Justice has been served in a way, but there has been numerous amounts of injustice in the book of Judges, the book of Judges ends this way. The very last section, the very last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And is that not the truth? Is not Israel doing whatever they want, whatever they think is right? And so the book of Judges has been dark, it's been difficult. But there's not without help. I'm going to close with a quote, and we're going to sing. I'm going to close with a quote. Judges is a dark, depressing book. But what we see is that sin leads to slavery, but God is a great Savior. And what we see throughout the book of Judges, the silver lining, if you will, is that God has not completely destroyed his people. God has not said, I'm going to start over. He has worked with fallen people who are bent on rebellion. He has worked with them. He has been gracious to them. He continues to provide saviors for them. He's going to provide a righteous king. Initially, it's David. Ultimately, it's Jesus. And so there's grace. The book of Judges, to a large degree, is about God's grace. People mess up. You and I do stupid things. We're sinners. God is gracious. He doesn't destroy us. He brings a savior to us. McCann. McCann says this, God cannot help but be gracious to a people who apparently cannot help but be unfaithful. And that's true of all humanity. This indeed is the portrayal of God throughout the biblical canon, including the New Testament, where the resolution of God's dilemma takes the form of a cross, the ultimate act of God's grace towards an incurably sick humanity. And so I want to offer that grace to you this morning. Have you come to the point where you recognize that you are an incurably sick piece of humanity and you cannot save yourself? You are doomed and destined to eternal wrath from a holy God because of your sin. But God in his grace took care of that by bringing a righteous king who would not only lead his people, but he would die for his people. And that king is Jesus. So I want to ask if you've trusted in him, if you've believed in him, if you have had personal faith in him and been transformed by the king. And if you have been, 
then what is happening in my life and your life is that little by little, bit by bit, we are doing what is right in his eyes as opposed to doing what is right in ours. Let's pray. Father, this has been a heavy tax. We're grateful for the book of Judges, and we're grateful for all the lessons that it teaches us. Ultimately, Father, we see in our nation and in our lives so much that we, there is no king often in our hearts, and we do whatever we please, whatever is right in our own lives, and in our culture, and in our society, and in our life, in our life. We see that it leads to destruction. It leads to idolatry. It leads to immorality. It leads to instability. And we mess up our lives and our culture and our society because Jesus is not king. Father, I pray uh, for those here who don't have Jesus as the king in their hearts. pray that they would believe in him, place their faith in him, trust in him, and allow them to, to change them. And I pray for those of us who have Jesus on the throne of our hearts and who often displace him from that. I pray that you would help us to do what is right in his eyes. Jesus, that you would change us, change our hearts, not just our actions, change who we are so that we can honor you. We ask it in Christ's name.